Amen. It is so good to see you this morning and have you in worship. And those of you tuning in online, we're glad that you have joined us. In the back of your Bible, near the end, not far from the very end, you'll find a little short letter, an epistle written by John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee. In fact, it's entitled 1 John. He writes three epistles, and they really have some really unique names. I mean, they lurked hard to name these epistles. They are 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. John, thank you for giggling, Dale. That makes me feel better that you got the joke. All right, so 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We begin 1st John today, a study through this letter, and it is John writing. Now, you might read this letter. It's five chapters, 105 verses. It's only about 2,500 words compared to Psalms, who has over 40,000 words, and Genesis, over 38,000 words. It's not that big a book. You can read it in one sitting without any problems. But in this small book, John it's giving us the spiritual giant of a letter on a treatise of Jesus Christ. In this book, he lays out for us the beauty that is Christ. Not too far in the past, Barna, a research group that particularly looks at issues of church and religion throughout the world and in America, did a survey. And 62% of people in the category of attend church regularly, that's the category, attend church regularly, doesn't mean a denomination or anything like that, but attend church, which means they would put themselves in the the Christian category of religion, 62% of people surveyed that attend church regularly said that pretty much all religions are praying to the same God. 62%. Of people in America who fill church pews believe that all religions are going the same direction. Now the scandal of that statistic is simply this. They are saying, 62%, over 50% are declaring that Christianity does not offer anything unique. That it's not special. That there's nothing worth looking into Christianity that you won't find in other religions around the world. Brothers and sisters, I declare to you that that is far from the truth. That is abhorrent of the truth. That is not the truth at all. For it is Christianity and Christianity alone that gives us the unique gospel of God himself taking on flesh and rescuing people. It is Christianity alone that tells us that the God of all creation intervened in order to redeem mankind from their sin, that they may have a relationship with Him. Brothers and uh, sisters, Christianity is unique in the fact that Christianity has a champion and a Savior, and it is Christ, and there is no one like Him. If you take Christ out of Christianity, you have nothing. It is Christ and Christ alone in which we find. And this is exactly what John will do. He will take up his pen, he will grab his scroll, and he will write to the church, and he will say to the church, do not miss the fact, do not leave the truth, do not overlook the pinnacle of your faith, it is Christ. He will put Christ at the center of the church again. He will argue that everything we do must be built on and predicated from Christ, and Christ alone. This is what John will do. Now, to give you just a little background on 1 John, you probably recognize his name. In fact, John is accredited with five books in the New Testament. There is some debate on if he wrote them or not, but not enough for us to think that they are true. We, we believe that he wrote all five of these letters. The first one you'll find is the Gospel of John. 
It's near the entry of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels are the eyewitness accounts by the apostles to proclaim the resurrected Jesus. They were called to give this account. So in the Gospel of John, John's first book in our New Testament Bible with his name, he looks backwards. He looks to the past. He presents to us the work, the life, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as God our Savior. He's looking back at this historical event of Jesus. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we find God's revelation to John. John gets to witness it, and John records not the past, but the future. He records the consummation of all history when the Jesus that was in the Gospel of John returns in the future kingdom. So he gives for us these bookends in our New Testament. The past, Jesus the Savior, walking, working, dying, resurrecting, saving, and ascending, And the future, Jesus coming again in order to deliver his people and solidify his kingdom forever. But right in the middle, right in the middle of the past work of Jesus and the future work of Jesus, we have the church age, the age in which we live. The age in which we are to walk with God in the midst of this not yet, but almost, right? We're we're already saved, we're already in the kingdom, but we're not yet there because Christ has not returned. In the middle, he writes for us these three letters. They are for the present, they are for the now. They are for us to say, this is how we live and walk and breathe as people who believe the Jesus of John and who know the Jesus of Revelation is returning. So what now for the church? And we have these three letters. Now, John writes the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John somewhere between A.D. 80 and 100, probably around A.D. 80. Now, why does that matter? Because when I say 80, that's about 50 plus years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. We're 50 or so years past Jesus. Why does that matter? Because 50 or so years past Jesus means now we're on to the second and third generation of Christians, which means some of the zeal is wearing off. The persecution is rising. There is division in the church. You're getting further and further and further from the source of the beginning of Christianity, the start of Christ's life. And in fact, John, the son of Zebedee, the fisherman, he is one of the last living apostles when he records these letters. We know this because he's probably the only apostle to actually live and die at old age and not die of persecution. So he's one of the last ones. He's one of the original relics of the apostles. He's the old church guard that has the story of Jesus. And what happens is, is the churches that he's planted and oversees and loves that are probably around Ephesus, modern day Turkey, he's overseeing them, he loves them, and he finds out that there is a, a false doctrine that's come in. Here's what they're teaching. They're teaching that Jesus was not fully God and fully man. They are dividing the nature of Jesus from being fully God and fully man. If you divide the nature of Jesus, if you say that Jesus was just a man who touched divinity or God who never touched man, you rip the gospel of its message. And so this has come into the church. There is now schism in the church. We'll see this in chapter 2 and and further on into the letter. There is division that's happening. In fact, some have left the church over this because of the problem. So John... Being the pastor, being the theologian, being the apostle, picks up his pen and begins to write to them. And he goes all the way back to his eyewitness account. And he says, wait a minute. I know the truth. I saw it. I was there. Let let me remind you again about Jesus. And what's so funny about this is that John writes as a pastor. 
He writes not as just a theologian in an academic argument. He's not just writing about doctrinal things, though he'll cover them. He writes as one who is passionately in love with the church. In fact, he's so in love with the people of God that he will refer to them as his children. He's so in love with the people of God and the truth of God that he'll refer to the church as his children, at the same time referring to those that are sowing discourse as the children of the devil. He will fight for the church. He's going to the mat for you and for me to know the truth of Jesus Christ. So we have, in John chapter 1, this story of Jesus. And here's the themes. I'm going to give you four themes from the whole book of John. From the whole book of John, here are four lessons you'll see that John will unfold. The first thing you'll see very clearly is that John believes we should have right belief. If you don't have right belief, you're going to go the wrong direction. If you don't have right doctrine, if you don't know who God is and who the scriptures tell of him, then you're going to go the wrong direction. So he is adamant that we must know the right things about God and his son, Jesus Christ. And then he will say, not only must you have right belief, you must have right behavior. If you've met Jesus, you should behave differently. And this will unfold in two ways. One, he will say to the church, we must hate sin. Run from sin, war against sin, not act as though we have conquered sin, but act as though we are saved by grace and are fighting sin until the day we see Christ, confessing it to one another. And also he will say in that behavior, we must love each other in the church and help along the way. Secondly, or thirdly, he will tell us that we must have right devotion. Now, what do I mean by that? What John will do in the letter of 1 John is he will say, you must have right belief. You got to believe the right way you got to behave the right way. But it's possible for someone to believe the right stuff and behave poorly. It's possible for someone to behave the right way, but yet believe the wrong thing. And it's possible for someone to have the right belief and be morally okay, behave in such a way where they see themselves as clean and yet be devoid of love of God. And so he will say that deep down, you must have a rooted devotion to God. A love for God that springs up in the joy of the Lord. And that will lead to finally, he'll say, and all of this is for the right reward, that you would know God, that you would have eternal life, that joy would spring forth in you. So let's get to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. This is the introduction to the letter. And simply put, here is what John would tell us. He would tell us this, that everything we do is in Christ alone. That Christ alone is the anchor of everything. That he's the centerpiece of all of our doctrine and theology and behavior and devotion and reward. That Christ is the anchor of the church, the cornerstone, the first, the central piece of everything that we are. If we don't get Christ right, if we don't have Christ, if we don't pursue Christ, then we've missed it all. And so in John 1, 1 through 4, he will introduce us to Christ again. He will grab his pen in a swirling fashion and write for us the beauty of Christ all over again. He will tell us that Christ and Christ alone is the answer. Let's look together at John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Listen to what he says. He writes these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed it to you, eternal life, which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen, we have heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray together. Father, we are 
by your grace and your mercy gathered here in the building or online. And we are given this beautiful testimony of John the Apostle, the eyewitness. And Lord, by your grace and your mercy, we as the church get to read it and study it and know it. And so I pray this morning that by the truth of your word and and the working of your spirit, you would reveal to us Christ again, that we would see him in his fullness and beauty as best our eyes can behold him. Lord, we be shaped by Jesus. Father, I pray this morning for the one in the church who, who doesn't know Jesus. They're not sure about salvation. They're not sure about the Jesus of the Bible. They've got questions. I pray this morning that, that through the text and through the preaching of your word, you would reveal Jesus to them. Lord, I pray for the brother or sister in Christ that finds themselves joyless. They find themselves lacking the joy of the Lord. They find themselves struggling and, and, and um, just uh, sludging through life, Lord. I pray this morning they would see that all the joy of the Lord is found in Christ. No matter what we faced, Christ is the answer. That, that He alone is the answer. Remind us again of Jesus. Set before us Jesus. Show us Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. In the original language, verses 1 through 3 is one sentence. Uh, John doesn't think much about commas or periods or punctuation. He writes one long sentence with three or four clauses. He is unloading on us the doctrine and the knowledge of Christ. In fact, as you read it, if you have any familiarity with John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, you'll kind of see some of the same themes that he's playing out. He's using these kind of doctoral words, these, these words he's fleshed out before. He's bringing us into the image of Christianity, and he's laying for us Christ. In these four verses, he's describing to us Christ. He's giving us Jesus again. Remember, he's writing to a church that's in a Jesus crisis. They have some that are tearing down the very nature of the Savior. And so he's rushing to with his eyewitness account to remind them of who Jesus is and why he's called to write about him. And he sets before us Christ. Martin Luther writing about these four verses would simply say this. He says, so beautifully and gently does it picture Christ to us. He puts in front of us Christ. So just for a few moments... I want to show you from the first four verses of John why Christ is everything, why in him we find all of our hope, why he is where we anchor our life and find our joy in uncertain times, why he is our answer to sin, why he is the answer to eternal life. I want you to see that everything we have is in Christ alone. There are four truths about Christ in these first four verses that we must anchor our life on. And if we get these wrong, we are not a church. We are a gathering of pagans bought into a cult. We must get these right. Truth number one, Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. He's really God. He's truly God, as the theologians would write. He is all God. There's not a part of him that's not God. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, In that which from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, that which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now notice the very first phrases in the first verse. It says, in the beginning or from the beginning. Now, John is using this word beginning in a familiar way. 
We find this word throughout Scripture, and whenever we find it, what happens when you see the word beginning? Most often when it's references of Jesus or God, it is helping us locate Jesus in eternity past. Notice with me what he says. In the beginning, we testified about Jesus, or we knew that Jesus was there. He's hearkening back to the words of the beginning. We see them first in Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that verse always makes me chuckle because I don't quite understand it logically. It doesn't make sense to me in the logical form. Think about it. In the beginning, which means the start, which means everything began there, which means that's where everything started. But the very next clause of the sentence is, in the beginning, God. Wait a minute. God was before the beginning. The Bible says in the beginning, God, which means before the beginning, there was God. Now, let me let you in on a question that you'll spend the rest of your day wallowing over. How long did God live before he made the world? I have no idea. I have no clue because he's eternal. Time means nothing to him. He started the world. He started the clock. Before the beginning, there was God. And if you ever meet a theologian, that can tell you what God was doing before the beginning, let me give you my favorite Hebrew word, baloney. <laughs> Only second to hogwash. Right? We don't understand the eternal God. But here's what we know. Before God made anything, God was there. So what is John doing? John is writing to the church, and he's simply saying, look at the words, look at the text, listen to the word in the beginning, listen to what he says, that which from the beginning. He's, he's anchoring Jesus in eternity past. He's locating Jesus before the start of creation, before the first star was placed, the first river was carved, the first ocean was created, the first garden was planted, the first chicken or egg, whatever came first, before that, chuckles, chuckles, before that, there was God and Christ because Christ is part of the triune God. He was there. We hear John use this word again in Genesis, or excuse me, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, Christ, and the word was with God, Christ, and the word was God. In the beginning, before the start, located in eternity. So what is John doing? John's writing to the church and he's saying, don't miss this doctrine of Christ, that when you come to Christ, you are coming to the eternal God, the God of all creation, the God that was before time, the God who made all things, the God who holds all things. When you come to Christ, you are coming to God. This is good. This is good for you and for me. Remember the main issue that John is dealing with would later become defined as Gnosticism. It's not yet, but it's working its way into the church in John's day. And they're simply saying this. Gnostics would believe that flesh is sinful and spirit is good and that the goal of life is to get out of our flesh, to get away from our flesh, to separate from the flesh. And so what they would teach, where that would extrapolate to, would be simply this. The God of all creation could never put himself in flesh because flesh is evil. So therefore, if Jesus was God, he must not have been man. But if it was a man, there's no way it could have been God. So the first church is beginning to say things like, well, Jesus was really just a really, really, really important man. And at his baptism, God's spirit fell on him and elevated him to the role of Christ. And before he died on the cross, God's spirit left him. And yet it was just a man who died on the cross. Now listen to me. Don't miss this. I know this is a theological web of nonsense, but here's why it's important. If Jesus is not God, we have no salvation. Listen now, don't miss this. 
If Jesus is not God, we have no atonement for sin because God's wrath is poured out on sin. And show me which person can stand up to the wrath of God. Show me which mere mortal can absorb the wrath of God and come out of the grave on the other side. Without Jesus being God, the atonement does not make sense. The sacrifice will not do. It's not satisfied. If Jesus were mere man, then the slaughtering of men would continue. But Jesus is not mere man. He is God in the flesh. Why is this good? It's good for you and me, Christian. Brother or sister, it's good for you and me. Why? Because my Savior is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. My Savior is the creator of all the earth. My Savior is the one who holds all things together. My Savior walks with me and talks with me and holds the cosmos at the same time. My Savior is God in the flesh. This is why it's good. This is why it's marvelous in our eyes that Jesus is God. And he'll go a little bit further. Look with me at verse 2. He'll go even further to flesh this out. He will say simply this in verse 2. He will say that life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you, listen now, the eternal life which was with the Father. He's now equating Jesus to eternal life and he's saying eternal life is always found with God. God is the only eternal being. That where there is God, there is life, not death, but eternal being. So now he's saying Jesus is that very eternal life, the very Father that's always been. So when we come to Jesus, we come to the God who has never been created and will never be destroyed. We come to the eternal God. So he's declaring to us Jesus is the eternal salvation. God in the flesh. Why is this important? It's important because of this, brothers and sisters. Jesus is not a poet. He is not a theologian. He is not a wise rabbi. He's not a really good dude. He's not another Moses or an Abraham or a David. He's not an angel. He is God in the flesh, and all of our hope rests on him. My champion, my savior, my king is the creator of heaven and earth. This is the beauty of the gospel of knowing that Jesus is fully God. But then John will make the very next point. Point number two, simply this, Jesus is fully man. He will give us this conundrum that we will wrestle with for all of our life, trying to figure out this beauty of God becoming flesh. But he will lay it in front of the church and say, you cannot separate the two. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is truly God. He is truly man. There is no the part of him that is one or the other. It is all encompassing. And why? Because he will lay out to the church that the Savior must be fully God, but he must also be fully man. Notice with me in the text, verse 1 and 2 again. He writes these words in verse 1 and 2. He says, excuse me, verse 1, that which we were from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it. Now notice what he's doing. He's using these sensory words. He's saying, you guys are fighting over whether or not Jesus was really a man or if he was really God. And oh, by the way, I can end the argument because I was there. John is giving us this first-person account, this eyewitness account. In fact, if you'll notice in the text, verses 1 through 3, 11 times you'll find the words we, our, or our testimony. He's referring to the apostles. Now let me give you just a quick lesson on the apostles. The apostles, the 12 chosen by God and their close associates, we would include in this Mark and others who witnessed and wrote down such as Luke. We understand that those apostles were given by God a special calling to witness the resurrection 
resurrection of Christ, to see him in body after his death, and to record it for us, led by the Spirit, so that by their testimony, we can have an eyewitness account of the Lord. So why should I tell you this? Because there are no more apostles. They're all dead. The account is written in the word of life. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. We have the story of Jesus. We have all we need to be saved. So just by sidebar, Brothers and sisters, if you're looking for answers outside the word of God, you will not find them. For this is the testimony of God ordained by him through his apostles for us. This is the calling of scripture that we take the apostles at their word. Now notice what John does. I love this. I was reading this this week and it just flooded my emotions. I love this. John says, I'm going to tell you what I saw. I'm going to tell you my eyewitness account that Jesus was really a person. And notice what he says. Look in your Bible. I heard him. The first thing he says is, I heard him. I listened to him. He had a real voice. He spoke. I heard him say, come to me, all you are levy laden, and I will give you rest. I heard him say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I heard him declare before Abraham, I am. I heard him say to Lazarus, come out of that tomb. I heard him tell the storm, be quiet, and it stopped blowing. I heard him say to Jairus' daughter, get up, and she came back from the dead. I heard him, and I didn't hear it through the grapevine. It wasn't passed down to me. I was there. I heard it. When you were a kid, you probably played the game telephone. The game works like this. You get with a group of people and you whisper something in one of the ears to the person next to you. And that person whispers it in the next person and the next person and the next person. And when they're done, you hear what was passed down. And usually what happens, if you started with Jesus loves you, it usually ended with peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It, it never really worked out the right way. Now, I was usually the one who would change it on purpose. What a sinner. Thank you, Jesus. But, it, but it's this passing down can water the story of Jesus. And what's happened in the church when John writes is that the story of Jesus has been watered down by testimonies that were not true, and they've broken the story. And so John, the eyewitness, picks up his pen and he says, Wait a minute. I don't know what you've heard but I was there, and I heard him. Notice what else he says. And I saw him. I saw him. John picks up his pen and says, you stop this foolishness now. I saw him. I saw him walk on the water and climb in the boat. I saw him take one or two loaves of bread, feed 5,000 people, and pick up leftovers. I, I saw him. I saw him walk up to Zacchaeus and say, Zacchaeus, get down from that tree. We're going to eat. I saw him talking to the woman at the well when we returned to give him food. I, I saw him speak to the Pharisees about the truth of the Old Testament prophesying about him. I watched him grab the man who was blind and spit in some mud and rub it on his face. I watched him turn the water into wine. I saw him tell the guy who was laying on the mat, get up and walk, you're healed. I saw him. And then he goes a step further. Look in your text. Look what he says in verse 2. Not only did he see him, look what he says. I looked upon him. That's the word behold. I studied him. This is not a passing glance. This is not just a, a quick look. John says, not only did I see him do those things, but I stopped and contemplated them. I surveyed them. I looked over them. I glared at them deeply. Now think about what John is telling you. John is saying, I watched him when he spoke. I heard him say, Lazarus, get out of the grave. I watched Lazarus walk forth. But then he's going even further and he said, but then 
I sat and talked with Lazarus. I studied it. I looked at it every direction I could. I, I know it's true. I studied Jesus. I, I beheld Jesus. Now think about John. Think about John at the foot of the cross sitting next to Mary, Jesus' mother, watching Jesus die and the blood pour down. Listening to Jesus scream in a loud voice, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he looks at the church and he says, I heard him. And I saw him. And I beheld him. I stared at him. I studied him. Think about John when he foot raced Peter to the grave and beat him and ran in and looked around. And he said, I, I studied that grave. That tomb was gone. That door was open. I crawled under it and underneath it and around it. I didn't just glance in. I ran in that thing. I looked everywhere. I know he's not there. I know he's alive. I saw him. I beheld him. And then notice what your Bible says. Look there at the rest of verse 2. And I touched him. I touched him. I embraced him. I felt him. I know that he's real. I know that he's true. I touched him. There is no doubt in my mind that he's recalling the Luke's gospel account of when the disciples saw Jesus manifested into the room after his resurrection and he held out his nail-scarred hands and he said, touch here. Feel this. Listen. Jesus was really a man. And think about it. We declare He is fully God, which means our salvation is possible. But now we declare He's fully man, so our substitute is present. We, we have to have a substitute. We have to have one to stand in for us. A life is demanded for sin, for the wages of sin is death. The payment is a life. There's a life that is requested for Corey's sin. There's a life that must pay the punishment. There's a life that must feel the wrath of God. And Jesus stood in my place on the cross and became that life because he's really a human. It really happened. It is true. John said, I saw him. And in fact, if you read down a little bit further in verse 2, he uses the word manifest. He said, he materially was present in front of us. We would hear him say these same words in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and mercy. This is God's goodness. Danny Aiken writing about this beautiful truth, would write it this way. He would say, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He's not half God and half man, all God and no man, all man and no God, nor is he simply a man uniquely in touch with his divine. No, he is the God-man. Like no one else who will ever live, he has always been with the Father, and at Bethlehem he came to be with us. The God-man. God in the flesh. John says, I... I know he's fully God, and I know he's fully man because I've seen him. And that leads us to the third truth that he lays out, and that's simply this. Jesus is the center of salvation. He's the center of salvation. He's the cornerstone. He's the anchor. He's the head. There is no salvation apart from this God-man. You cannot find salvation anywhere else or look any other place. Look at verse 2 and 3 and how he describes this salvation. In verse 2, he says, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim able to you, also to you, excuse me, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. 
John says, here's why it's important that you know Jesus is fully God and fully man, because he's the only way to eternal life. There is no other way to salvation but through Jesus Christ. You won't find it anywhere else. And so he writes for us. Now, now think about this for a moment. Let's just get clear with Christian doctrine. We as Christians believe this, that at a real point in history, about 2,000 years ago, God really did take on flesh. He really did manifest himself in human form. He was really born of a virgin. He really lived in Galilee and came from Nazareth and was born in Bethlehem. He really did go to a cross. He really did die on a real cross and was buried in a real tomb and rose from that grave in a real resurrection. Brothers and sisters, all of our salvation is anchored on a real point in history of a real Savior that really happened. This is salvation. Salvation is not found in your church attendance, your Bible reading, your baptism. Salvation is not found in prayers you pray. Salvation is not found in ties you give, moral living. Salvation is not found in the fact that you come to church. Salvation is not found in your grandmother's faith, your mama's faith, your sister's faith. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ dying at Calvary. Salvation is found in the God-man and the point of history where he rescued us. We anchor our hope on a real historical event, a real empty tomb. And John says, I saw it. I'm telling you. And why is he telling us? Notice what the text says. So that you may have eternal life. The reason is so that we would be rescued from death. Death is coming. Death is coming for all of us. One day we will die, we will draw our last breath, we will be buried in the ground. And if we don't die, the Lord will return and we will stand in judgment before him. It's all consummating towards history. We're moving to that moment. It's going to happen. And the answer to death, eternal life, is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. This is what he tells us. This is the clear picture. Notice verse 2. He says, and we testify to this. We proclaim this. The apostles are telling you this is salvation. There is nowhere else to look but to Christ. This is why, brothers and sisters, we weep and we mourn for the millions of Muslims who think Jesus is just a good teacher. For the millions of Jews that believe him to be a scandalous rabbi. We weep and we mourn for the atheist that thinks he's not real. We weep and we mourn for the Southern Baptist who thinks because they have their name on a church roll, they're saved, but they've never met Jesus. We weep and we mourn for the Mormon who's found the wrong Jesus and the Jehovah Witness who's found the wrong Jesus. We weep and we mourn and we go and we give and we proclaim. Why? Because the only hope for the Muslim and the Buddhist and the atheist and the church member who doesn't know Jesus, the only hope is Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer for your son, mom and dad. Jesus is the answer for your lost spouse. Jesus is the answer for your neighbor. Jesus is the answer for your coworker. John says, I've told you this so you may have eternal life. He didn't say, I told you this so you can have a option to eternal life. It's the option to eternal life. Jesus and Jesus alone. And we must say this. We must be clear about this and, and let us be clear. This account, this scriptural account of the apostles declares to us that this is the way of salvation, this Jesus. So let us be clear. If you don't have John's Jesus, you don't have Jesus. 
If you don't have the biblical recorded Jesus, if you don't know this testimony of these apostles, then you don't know Christ and you do not have eternal life. For Christ gave the apostles the goal, the task to record the message. And it's their message that brings salvation. It's their message that he built the church on as he told Peter in the Gospels. It's their message in which Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, For I know whom I believe, and I am persuaded that he is able. This is the message. If you don't know John's Jesus, you don't know Jesus. This is why, brothers and sisters, we stand and proclaim the word of God over and over and over and over because this is the only hope for eternal life. We testify to Jesus. That leads to the fourth and final truth, and that's simply this. And and here's encouragement for all of us, and that is this. Jesus is the only true source for joy. Four times in the Gospel of John, John will record these words, I write to you or we write to you. Four times, excuse me, in 1 John, he will write the words, I write or we write. So four times he'll tell you kind of his main reason. I gave you those in a list form earlier. Here's one of those times. Look at verse 4. Here's why he writes this letter. Here's what he wants you to know. Look what he says. And we are writing these things so that our joy might be completed. He desires for the church to have joy. He wants us to have joy in our lives, in our hearts. He wants to have joy in our peace with God. He wants us to have joy that's unshakable, this joy of the Lord. He wants us to know deep in our hearts that no matter what we face, whatever we're going through, whatever tomorrow may hold, joy will abound. He says, I want you to have that kind of joy. I want you to know it. And notice he gives us kind of two ideas of what this joy looks like. Just look at verse 3. He says in verse 3, that which you have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you also too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He tells us exactly where this joy is found. He said, here's where you find this joy. You find it first in Christ who is with the Father. Joy is found in the Lord. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have joy. Why? Because you don't have peace with God. You know death is coming. You know life is falling apart and you have no answer for it. But when you have the joy of the Lord, when you know Christ, you have an answer for all the brokenness that comes. You have an answer down deep past the tears. But notice notice something else. Not only do you have the joy of the Lord, but you have the joy of the Lord's people. Look what he says. I want you to be in fellowship with us. The word fellowship there is koinonia. It means complete submission and encouragement and bond with one another. It means to go together on the path. So he literally says, here's where joy is found. Now, this is important. Joy is not found in the new iPhone. Joy is not found in that dream vacation. Joy is not found in paying off your mortgage, though I hope to get there one day. Joy is not found in price cuts of health insurance. Come on, Lord. Joy is found in knowing Jesus and being with his family. Because all that other stuff I listed, sure, A new phone can bring you some happiness. A great vacation can help in paying off your mortgage and make you do backflips. But it's temporary. It's fleeting. My mortgage being paid off has no answer for the grave when I weep with a loved one. That new iPhone has no answer for that cancer diagnosis. That great vacation means nothing when my family's falling apart, when the world is upside down. But joy, sustaining joy, lasting joy, is found in the Lord and found in His people. And here's what's so beautiful about what John writes. 
The way John describes Jesus for the church, he literally says, when you have this Jesus, you have a bond and a fellowship that ties you to the apostles. It ties you to the prophets. It ties you to the church. You know what that means? That means right now I have more of a bond with the believer in North Korea than I do the atheist down the street. I have more of koinonia with the believer in South Africa than I do with the, the Buddhist in New York. I have more of a relationship with the believer in this church than my lost family members. Why? Because it's in Christ. Christ is the center of joy. So, so let me ask you a question. How's your joy? How are you doing in the midst of all of the upside-down world? Do you find yourself lost and, and dragging and worn down and, and grumpy and and, and your head spinning and everything that's going on. Are you trying to find your joy in the, the news or, or politics or, or anywhere else? Are you trying to find, nobody finds joy in politics, right? Are you finding your joy somewhere else? The Apostle John says the joy is found in Christ. In fact, let, let, let's write it this way. Let me ask you this question. Do you want joy? Well, let me give you the answer. Read the text backwards. Here's the text backwards. Want joy? Enter into fellowship with God and God's people. How do you enter into fellowship with God and God's people? You believe the testimony of the apostles. What is the testimony of the apostles? That Jesus Christ came in the flesh and that he is fully God and he saves us. That's where joy is found. Brothers and sisters, joy is found in the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, this morning we thank you for John's just overwhelming introduction to Jesus. Lord, we read his introduction and we realize he, he doesn't write a greeting. There's no small talk. There's no wasted words. He, with a flurry, just jumps right into saying, I've seen him. I know he's real. He's God in the flesh. He's the Savior. He brings eternal life. He's where joy is found. I thank you that John, with passion, picks up his pen led by the Spirit to tell us today, Jesus is the center of joy. Oh God, how we need that joy. How we need to be reminded day after day after day. God, I thank you that you sent Jesus. That he walked this world. That he knows what it means to be tempted. That he knows what it means to sleep and feel hungry. That he knows what it means to see brokenness and death. That he, that he understands this fallen world. He knows what it's like. I thank you that he was human. That he... That he that he stood in for us because he's human. But I thank you that he's fully God. That he did what I could not do. And that he rose from the grave, conquering death, hell, and Satan himself. Breaking the chains of sin. I thank you, Lord, that Jesus, God in the flesh, declares, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? We thank you that the God-man rescued us. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of response. We've left ourselves some time. We're going to sing the whole song because the, the whole song declares what John's been teaching us. The song is entitled, In Christ Alone, that everything we have is found in Christ. Maybe this morning you're here and, and you're a Christian, you're a believer, you know Jesus is God in the flesh, you know He saved you but, you, but you feel low in the joy category. You've gotten your eyes off of Christ. 
You've lost the fellowship of the believers and you, and you feel yourself being tossed and turned by the world. Maybe today you want to come to this altar and fall on your knees and, and just thank Jesus for saving you and, and declare again that you know He's the way and, and just ask Him to return the joy of your salvation. Maybe you want to come and say, Pastor, I've heard you talk about Jesus and I know I need to be saved. I know I need eternal life. I know I need fellowship with God. Maybe today you want to come and do that. Whatever the case may be, I, I pray this morning you would, you would find your joy in Christ. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. I'm going to remove my microphone and put on my mask, and I'm waiting for you. You come. Oh God, have your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning?